Today's scripture reading is found in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered them, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Calvary. Thank you, Grant, for the worship, the team, and for Ray, for your prayer, for Ben, for reading. And uh, thank you all for being here, coming back again. And uh, it's good to see you all this morning. Had a, heard from a lot of you uh, this past week, and uh, some of you uh, wanted to know uh, what the responses were from last week's a sermon, and um, the responses uh, were generally pretty positive. I probably had about 70 plus uh, emails and texts uh, this past week, and normally for a, a, a meaningful sermon, I'll have three or four, maybe five emails uh, on a Sunday, so uh, there was quite a bit of response this past week, and um, I had two responses that were very respectfully critical uh, on the right, and I had two responses that were uh, respectfully critical on the left, and the rest were uh, kind of straight up the middle and affirming. So, um, so thank you for everybody for uh, your responses and for the way that uh, we've all conducted ourselves, uh, for you have conducted yourselves and being respectful this past week. So, uh, if you perhaps are familiar with your Greek mythology, maybe you're familiar with the Straits of Messina. And in the Straits of Messina, uh, it's uh, kind of where Italy mainland and Sicily kind of come close together. There's a narrow little waterway. And in classical mythology, there are two monsters that are on either uh, shore. And you have to, st- have to sail straight up the middle to avoid getting devoured uh, by the two monsters, the, the Skill and Charybdis. And uh, I feel like last week we sailed right up kind of the middle of the Straits of Messina and we avoided getting devoured by the monsters. Uh, but this week we're going back into the Straits again. And I'm going to hope and pray, I have been hoping and praying, uh, that we can make it through again one more time through the Straits. So you might be saying, why are we going back? And uh, here's why. Partly because the text takes us there, and we're going to see that as we begin to unpack 
this text this morning. I think it has a lot of things to say specifically for uh, the context in which we find ourselves. And also because after I uh, preached last week, heard from your all questions and uh, some of the criticism on both the left and the right, uh, respectfully, but again, to you know, generate thoughts in my own mind. And so there's a few more things that I think uh, I want to say that are worth saying here in this context. So we're going uh, to take another run through the Straits of Messina, and we're going to trust that the Lord Jesus will be our guide and navigate us and keep us from being devoured by either monster in the ditch. So, all right, so same as last week, kind of how we did it, we're going to uh, jump back into our sermon series or stay in our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And we're going to just keep moving forward as has been planned uh, for a while now uh, with this next text, which is Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation of Jesus. So this fits right into our, our sermon series. And uh, we're going to look at the text kind of related to the overall story that we've been telling through uh, the Bible. And then we're going to draw out three implications that are particular to our context this morning. So to kind of rewind things a little bit, to kind of get our, our, uh, our minds back in the, in the story of where things have been, right? So uh, the, the Dark Lord uh, has taken over the world, the Satan, the adversary, the devil, right? And that happens in Genesis chapter 3. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, there's been this promise that's been given by God that a, a son of Eve would arise, and he would overthrow the Dark Lord, and he would restore the world's throne back to humanity. And so we've been waiting throughout the whole story of the Bible, through all last year, through all of 2020, waiting for this promised son of ease of Eve to arrive. And he finally shows up at Christmas time because, of course, the promised son of Eve is Jesus. And so we saw kind of all the drama that took place right around his arrival uh, into the world. And how uh, Satan in Revelation 12, if you were here uh, uh, for us for that sermon right around Christmas, how Satan uh, makes his attempt on Jesus's life. Jesus is hidden. He's sequestered away down into Egypt where he's kept safe. Then he's brought back up and he is taken into Nazareth, into Galilee, where he is kept hidden in his growing up years. And so now we're fast forwarding. We got to the baptism of Jesus last week. We fast forward about 30 years or so. And Jesus finally makes his public appearance. He's been hidden this whole time. Since his birth, angels announced his coming, but then he's been hidden away from the dragon. And now he finally makes this public appearance at his baptism. And so we finish up with the baptism. And as Jesus is baptized, we had this divine pronouncement that we saw last week. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So if there was any doubt in the adversary's mind as to where the promised son of Eve was, there's no more doubt. This is where he, this is who he is, right? He's lost track of him for 30 years, but now he knows, everyone knows, right? And so that's where we pick up our story here in Matthew chapter four. And immediately after Jesus is baptized, he's led by the spirit, Matthew tells us, out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So as soon as the devil locates Jesus again, after this 30-year hiatus, he immediately comes to him. And now we have this interesting conversation that takes place between the Satan, the adversary, and the promised son of Eve. 
And one of the questions that kind of keeps reoccurring throughout our text here is the devil says, if you are the son of God, then do such and such. If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. And I think this reflects some genuine uncertainty on Satan's part. I mean, I think we can have in our minds sometimes that as though um, wrongly, we can have in our minds as though the adversary and Jesus were kind of buddies up in heaven before the fall, knew each other pretty well. And then as Jesus comes down into earth, they're like, oh, hey, good to see you again. Yeah, you too. You know, kind of right. So like, but this is the reality. They've not met in this way before, right? So as Jesus comes into the world, he comes into the world incognito. He comes into the world as the promised son of Eve. And and so Satan and Jesus are not kind of old friends from up in heaven before Satan went rogue, right? So now we have this very first encounter and Satan is not exactly sure what he's dealing with. Now he knows, of course, that Jesus is the promised son of Eve, that He's seen that we saw that last week. He's known that the promised son of Eve has come, but he doesn't know at this point that the promised son of Eve is God himself. He hasn't figured that out yet. So let's not get too far down into our story and kind of ruin the drama of the moment. So when Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness, he doesn't know that Jesus is the incarnated son of God. He probably has some sense that Jesus is unique. Of course, he does probably have that, but you can think about into your Greek mythology and there were demigods. And so the idea that God somehow had imparted the divine something into mortal flesh, something like, what does that mean exactly? I don't think Satan knows at this point. So Satan comes with three temptations. We've seen these three temptations and it's very interesting as we look back through this whole story of the Bible that Satan is looking to do in this moment what he did with the first Adam at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. He comes to Jesus with three temptations, and there's a whole sermon that could be given for each temptation. I want to move us forward to this final temptation. He comes to Jesus in this final temptation, takes him to a very high mountain, and somehow, in some sort of vision, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And then verse 9, he says to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, I want us to think about what is going on in this moment in light of the whole story that we've been seeing for this past year. Satan is coming to Jesus and he's offering him the kingdoms of the world. Now, back a while back when I used to read this text, I always thought about this as kind of like, well, well, Satan is offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world, kind of like if you offered me a billion dollars. It's just like a billion dollars, except it's even bigger, right? This is just kind of a materialistic temptation. That's not quite the way to look at it because Satan is offering to Jesus, now catch this, the very thing that Jesus has come to take. Why has the promised son of Eve been sent into the world? He has been sent into the world to assume command of all the kingdoms of the world. This is the mission of the son of Eve. 
This is the thing that the promised son of Eve was prophesied would come for. And so Satan here in this moment is essentially saying, hey, listen, we don't need to fight. We don't need to get into conflict about this. I've got possession of everything that you came for. Rather than fighting, you worship me, you give your allegiance to me, and I will give you everything you come for. I will give you everything that you've been sent to bring, to take. But Jesus responds, verse 10, be gone from me, Satan. Like that was the last straw. He listened to the first two temptations, but now he's like, be gone from me, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He rejects the offer that Satan has given him because Jesus didn't come to be a vassal king under a tyrant empire. He came to bring the reign of God back into the world. And he's not going to subject the kingdom of God and the rule of God. And we might even say further, the rule of humanity to the power of Satan. So at this point in our story, Satan has made a compromise. He's offered Jesus a compromise. He's kind of brokered a peace agreement here, as it were, between them. Jesus rejects the offer. Satan leaves, and as the Gospels unfold, Satan increasingly is left with the choice, only one option of how to deal with Jesus, and that's to kill him. And that is, in fact, what he does by the time we get to the end of the Gospels. All right. Now, I want to draw out some implications of this narrative here in Matthew chapter 4 for how this impacts the way that we engage, as it were, in the world today. Satan comes to Jesus. He offers Jesus a good thing. He offers Jesus the very thing that Jesus came to acquire. And he offers it to Jesus without the cross. Just one piece of compromise, and Jesus can have what he came for without the cross. I think there's a lesson for us here in Jesus' rejection of this crossless empire that has been offered to him. Because like Jesus, we are tempted in so many different ways throughout our lives, not just as it relates to politics, which is where I'm going to apply a lot of this, but we're tempted in so many ways by the enemy to give up essential aspects of God's kingdom vision in order to avoid the pain of the cross. Jesus calls us all throughout his gospels to take up our cross and to follow him to his cross. To bear the cross is, essential, is an essential aspect of Christian discipleship and our allegiance to Jesus. There is a cross to bear in Christianity. Right? But we're tempted so often to try to get to the vision of the kingdom that God has called us to without having to go through the cross, without bearing the cross. And here's where I want to connect this now into our political landscape. And I want to get focused in particular here. I'm, I mean, I, there, there are other people that are listening to this that are in other parts of the, of the country. I've heard from some of you this uh, yesterday's or last week's sermon was put on our CPT podcast and that went out to other folks as well. But I'm, I'm speaking very specifically now to Calvary, 
right, to our situatedness here in this context in Oak Park. In every culture, there are certain ideals that are promoted by the culture that overlap with Christian ideals. And then there are certain ideals that are promoted by the culture that run contrary to Christian ideals. So I want us to think here carefully as a church about our situatedness in Oak Park, which is a, uh, uh, we're a 90%, you know, kind of take some percentages. I don't have the exact figures, but we're a 90% progressive community. Right? We are not kind of an even split, or an even split of left and right. right. We are situated as a church in a very progressive community. Now, in Oak Park, we think about, like, what are the ideals of Oak Park? Where are the places that Oak Park says, yes, these are the things that are important and champions? In Oak Park, for instance, it's very trendy to be for racial equality. Our community advocates for and promotes racial equality. And that's a place where the the Christian ideal and the Oak Park ideal overlap. They go together. And, and well, they should, right? So it's, it's good. We, we can come alongside of our community as our community promotes racial equality and racial dignity. We can come alongside our community and say, yes, we're for that, right? We are for that because Christianity is for that. But Oak Park, as a progressive community, it's, it's not so trendy in Oak Park to be pro-life. It's not, uh, sorry, I'm losing track of my notes here. It's not so trendy to be pro-life, right? That's, that's not affirmed by our progressive community. It's very trendy in Oak Park to affirm a compassionate stance on behalf of immigrants, Right? And that, again, overlaps significantly with the, with the Old Testament vision and then on in through the New Testament about entertaining strangers and caring for those uh, who are, are marginalized or disenfranchised, that there's a great deal of overlap between our progressive community's concern about immigrants and our Christian concern, our right Christian concern about immigrants. Well and good. But Oak Park, in Oak Park, it's not so trendy to affirm a biblical stance on sexual ethics and marriage. There's, there's not resonance with the Christian vision of sexuality and marriage in our community. It's very trendy to promote the importance of diversity, which again, well and good, the kingdom vision in the scriptures is a vision of all the kingdoms of the, of the earth, diverse kingdoms of the earth, bringing their glory into the kingdom of heaven. So it's well and good that Oak Park promotes diversity, but it's not so trendy in Oak Park to promote the unique exclusivity of Jesus as the only hope of humanity. That's not something that we have continuity with our community in. And we need to be mindful of the dangers about picking and choosing the kingdom virtues that resonate with the culture that we live in. There's a temptation here to pursue a crossless kingdom. 
We have all these Christian virtues or these Christian ideals that are handed to us in the scriptures, handed to us in the life of Jesus. And so here we have them in our hands and some of them resonate with the left and some of them resonate with the right. And given our situatedness here in progressive left-leaning Oak Park, if we take all the ideals that resonate with the left and we put those all in our, our, you know, our, our jacket or our sweater, right? And then all the ideals that resonate with the right, we put those under here. That's a crossless Christianity. And that's a danger that we face given our context in progressive Oak Park and our urban progressive context in general, more broadly than Oak Park. And given our situatedness in a progressive community, this is the danger of our progressive left-leaning congregants. Now, if we were situated in deep red state, you know, south or pick some other part of the country, right, where it was not a progressive environment, not a progressive culture, right, the, the danger for compromise would be with the, with, with the right, the political right, right? But we're not in that place. We're in a progressive community. So as a Christian, let me ask kind of us collectively, but if you're a progressive-leaning, left-leaning Christian, let me ask you this. What ideals do you affirm as a Christian that here in Oak Park our progressive community finds objectionable? Or again, where are you in your ideals as a Christian at odds with our community? So you might say, well, I'm all for love because Christianity is about love. And Oak Park will say, check, we are too. I'm all for racial, racial equality because Oak Park is all about racial equality. And Oak Park says, yep, us too. Care for the poor, gender equality, the importance of education, fair housing, care for immigrants. If these are all your ideals, well and good, right? Those are Christian ideals, right? So you don't need to, to be ashamed of that, right? But our community is on board with you in all of that. And if all of your ideals of Christianity map exactly onto the ideals of our progressive secular community, then at some point you need to say, do I have all of the ideals? Have I embraced the full range of Christian ideals? Are there any parts of your Christianity that are at odds with the ideals of our culture? And if not, then perhaps it's time for you to prayerfully rethink your Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that what we need to do is we need to you know, go in, get all of our conservative ideals that we've been hiding under our, you know, Mr. Rogers sweater that I get made fun of for wearing occasionally. And we need to put those on our hands and we need to run out into the culture and just get them in everybody's face. And it's not what I'm saying. And look at the way that the Apostle Paul did his evangelism. I think there's a, there's a lot of wisdom in this, right? So the Apostle Paul in Acts 13, he goes into uh, Athens and he's in Athens, which is a, you know, a pagan secular community. And he walks in. And the first thing that he does is he finds the continuity between the Christian vision of the world and these 
Stoic and pagan philosophers. He finds the continuity and he highlights the continuity that exists between the Christian vision and this pagan vision. And as he begins to interact with these pagan philosophers, he notes this continuity and then he works his way towards Jesus and the discontinuity. And I think there's a lot of wisdom there, right? We don't need to lead with all the most objectionable aspects of our faith as the first thing that we say, right? We want to establish the points of continuity and then we want to move towards the points of discontinuity. But we do want to move to the points of discontinuity in faithful allegiance to Jesus. We can't forever hide the points of discontinuity. So one of the things that's interesting uh, with this weekend Maybe you caught this, maybe you, you didn't catch this, I don't know. But this weekend, or Monday, for, certainly for the students, right? This is MLK Day. We celebrate on Monday Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy. And so many churches around the country are taking today in church this whole weekend uh, to celebrate the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. And Martin Luther King Jr. has a lot, he has a lot to be celebrated. I mean, what he did in bringing uh, uh, an awareness of the need for America more generally, but even for the church to, to think about the implications of the gospel and race. I mean, there is much to be celebrated in Martin Luther King's legacy. This is also, you may or may not have known, Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so in many churches around the country as well, there is a celebration or a, uh, a remembrance, as it were, of the need to remember the sanctity of human life. And of course, the sanctity of human life extends beyond just the, uh, the baby in the womb, uh, but that really is kind of the, uh, the driving uh, heart of the Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's focused around the pro-life movement. And both racism and abortion are as old as the human condition. I mean, you go back into the annals of history, all the way back into the Greco-Roman Empire and then beyond and down, right? And you can find examples of uh, prejudice and racism, and you can find examples of abortion. And both racism and abortion, since the beginnings of uh, Christianity in the New Testament, have consistently been rejected. Christianity has a clear stance throughout its whole history. This is, these are not uh, just contemporary left and right issues, right, that kind of only emerged in North America since the 60s or beyond. But these issues of the dignity of all human beings, regardless of their ethnicity or race, and the dignity and the value of all human beings, whether they're born or unborn, these two ideals have been held by Christians from the very beginnings of Christianity all through history up until this present day. But now we find ourselves in this polarized environment where the left will champion one Christian ideal and the right will champion the other Christian ideal, so much so polarizing the churches that some churches today will only recognize Martin Luther King Day and some churches will only recognize the Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so now even our churches are bifurcated in this division, following the way that our culture, our political systems have bifurcated these Christian ideals. The wisdom and the beauty and the value of Christianity is that it holds together the truth of God. It doesn't allow us to bifurcate these things into separate realities. 
And I think when we start getting ourselves into spots as a church where if we're in a progressive community, we grab on to MLK because there's going to be a lot of uh, continuity with our culture on that, but we're going to suppress or, or move down the chain or put it underneath our sweater vest, sanctity of life, because that's not, progr that's not progressive in our community. Or, you know, move down to Tennessee or someplace in the South and you just flip that around, right? I mean, the, the, the church kind of just takes its temperature based off of where the culture is at, and then that becomes the thing that they promote. And there's dangers in both directions on this. So last week or two weeks ago, I sent out a note inviting you all to come down to the, to the live rally because there had been uh, an incidence of uh, vandalism and racism that took place here in Oak Park, on Oak Park Avenue. And I went to that and I was glad to be there and it was super helpful to hear the people speak and to hear their heart. And uh, I was so encouraged to see some of you that were there and then to hear many of you that went down as well. But for those of you that went, enthusiastically, what if I had sent out an email inviting you to a pro-life rally on Oak Park Avenue or in Schofield Park? Would you have come enthusiastically to that as well? Because candidly, it didn't cost me much to go down to that rally on Oak Park Avenue a couple weeks ago because the community affirmed it. Right? It cost me nothing. It cost me an hour and a half of my time out of you know, kind of in the dinner hour. Right? But it, it, it didn't cost me a lot. But a pro-life rally, that would probably cost a bit more here in Oak Park. Not just my time, but kind of my reputation, as it were, with my neighbors or our reputation as a church here in this community. We have to be careful as a church that we do not embrace a crossless kind of Christianity. That we just take the temperature of where the community is, and then we pivot to keep ourselves in continuity with the community, and we, we suppress all the elements of the cross that are going to lead us into crucifixion. Jesus has called us to bear our cross. We want to do it graciously. We want to do it humbly. We want to do it with a spirit of love as much as possible, but we have to bear our cross when he calls us to bear our cross. So the first thing that I would say here in looking at this temptation moment of Jesus is that when he is offered a crossless way to the kingdom of God, he rejects it. He doesn't take it. All right, so we need to avoid a crossless way to the kingdom of God. Here's the other thing we need to avoid, though. And we can kind of see this a little bit more implicitly in this text. It's not quite as obvious, but I think it's there. We try to avoid the cross, not just by compromising kingdom uh, uh, ideals, but we try to avoid the cross by fighting to bring about the kingdom. Jesus could have beaten down the devil right here in this moment. I mean, Satan's coming into, into the wilderness to meet with Jesus. Satan doesn't know what he's facing at that moment. He doesn't realize that he is facing the word of God that created the entire universe. Right, And Jesus could have, with just a snap of his fingers like Thanos in Avengers Endgame, he could have undone Satan. In fact, not even a snap of his fingers, right? Just a thought, just a word. He spoke a word and brought all things into creation. He could speak a word and he can decreate. So Jesus has the power in this moment to fight his way to victory. He's come to undo, to vanquish, as it were, 
the dark Lord. He's come to undo the power of Satan. So why doesn't he just strike him down? Why even the incarnation? Why bother coming into this world to begin with? Why not just take care of the adversary from up in heaven? He could have. Well, there's a long answer here. There's a whole sermon here. I'm not going to try to solve all of it. But we saw last week that when Jesus came for his baptism, he stepped into his identity with fallen humanity, right? He, he doesn't just stay up in heaven, right? He comes down into fallen humanity. He steps into our humanity and he unites himself to our fallen and to our sinful flesh. And then in Romans chapter eight, Paul says that when Jesus died, he condemned sin in the flesh. And the vision that I think that we have here in the New Testament is that of Jesus, as it were, taking into himself our brokenness and our fallenness and then taking all of that brokenness and fallenness down into the grave. So if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, there's been a lot of remakes and movies, but uh, if you go back into the uh, Sir Arthur Conan O'Doyle uh, uh, stories that were written, uh, the, the great... Uh, um, uh, uh, the great opponent of Sherlock Holmes, uh, the, the Satan, the adversary of Sherlock Holmes, is uh, James Moriarty. He's kind of this mastermind that Sherlock Holmes is always kind of going back and forth on. And they get to the kind of the climactic last moment in the Sherlock Holmes stories. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is ready to be done writing the stories, apparently. And so uh, he writes the ending in which Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty uh, meet finally on this uh, cliff edge above this huge precipitous falls. And Sherlock Holmes, to defeat Moriarty, grapples with him, wraps his arm around, arms around him and throws them both together over the falls to their death. That is what Jesus has done with sin, death, and humanity. He has come down into the world and he has wrapped his arms around our sin and our brokenness and he has cast himself over the edge into the falls of death. Now, Sir Arthur Conan O'Doyle got all sorts of flack for having killed off everybody's favorite hero, so he had to bring him back from the dead and have more stories. And in fact, that works out pretty well because Jesus fell with sin and death into the grave, but then was raised back up through the power of God. And just like in the original uh, Sherlock Holmes stories, Moriarty stayed down in uh, the, uh, the bottom of the falls. Sin and death stays down in the bottom of the grave, and Jesus is raised back up. So Jesus had to put fallen humanity to death in himself. It wasn't just enough to defeat Satan. He had to redeem our brokenness. And so he took our brokenness into himself and put it to death. But he won through sacrifice and through death, not through violence and conquest. I was reading an online essay uh, last week is written by a conservative, uh, very politically, I would even say aggressive uh, conservative Christian. And I think it was written back prior to the election and, and uh, you know, who are you going to vote for? And, and uh, the, uh, the, the essayist, the author, was uh, critiquing, uh, pretty aggressively critiquing John Piper, who I mentioned uh, last week affirmingly, and saying that John Piper was too preoccupied with the character of a politician and what does John Piper want? Does he want Mother Teresa? And, you know, politics is hard and you've got to be kind of brutal. And so, like, John Piper's unrealistic. And then he also was critiquing Tim Keller, who's a pastor in 
uh, Manhattan, right down in the, you know, kind of in the, the middle of, of urban Manhattan. And Keller has taken a very similar approach uh, that we've taken here, or that I've taken here, where you got to vote your conscience and politics are messy. Maybe it's better to say that I've taken the same approach as Tim Keller because he's much more famous than I am. But in any case, this author is critiquing John Piper and critiquing Tim Keller. And he says, he goes on to say, hey, sure, Trump is he's rough, he's uncouth, but he's willing to do the hard work of taking down the liberals. Taking them down before they ruin the country with their socialism, their critical race theory, their taxation, their gay agenda, and on and on and on it goes. And then the author quotes George Orwell, and uh, he has Orwell saying this. Orwell, a quote, people sleep peaceably in their beds at night only because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. And the author's conclusion in the essay is that we Christians, we need politicians like Trump because Trump stands ready to fight for us. He beats down the opposition. And I would submit to you that that is exactly the opposite reason. That's exactly the problem with Trump. I mean, that's the better way to say it. My primary issue, and I think I was, I, I said something along these lines last week, but I don't think I was, uh, I don't think I was fully understood because I don't think I was entirely clear. So I'm going to try to clarify something that I, I said last week. I was saying that last week, we need to not compromise our gospel witness. And I think I was heard in, in a particular direction. My primary issue with, with our association with, with Trump, our association with, with, with Donald Trump, is not his character. And I, I think there are some issues there with his character. And I do think there can be limits to how far one wants to associate with someone of bad character. But that wasn't primarily what I, I had in mind. I don't have a utopian view of politicians uh, that all politicians are going to be more, kind of moral, upstanding uh, human beings. And I, and I do get some of like, like the policy and the character in which, you know, and that's hard. And I, okay, fine. Right? But my primary comments were not related to Trump's character. And I think I was understood as maybe being saying some of that. And I'm, that's not a, uh, a blanket kind of approval of his character by any means. Nor was my primary issue with his policies, right? So many of his uh, Policies are just basically you know, good old-fashioned conservative policies. And as I said last week, policies, political policies are complicated, right? And it's hard to know like, what, what policies are going to result in and which policies are needed. Do we need left policies or right policies? So my, my primary issue with Donald Trump in my comments has not been about his character, which I, I, though I do find it objectionable, nor his policies. My primary issue is how he belittles and how he mocks the very people that I'm trying to win for Christ, particularly here in this community. So when I said last week that Trump has compromised our gospel witness, that's, that's what I had in mind. Trump has been, and I, I don't know that there's any debate on this. I mean, he, he kind of openly, he's been intentionally insulting to the people of my mission field. And I'm not saying that he's insulting because he's conservative or because he's pro-life or because he defends traditional marriage or religious liberty. I mean, I'm conservative on those issues, and so I'll bear those crosses. Like, I, I'm, that's not the issue. 
he's insulting because he intentionally insults the political left and the people of the political left, not just his political opponents, but the run-and-mill voter. He, he, he speaks insultingly and condescendingly. He mocks and makes fun of them. And I'm not going to hold hands with or hide behind a man who belittles and threatens and makes fun of the very people that I'm trying to share the love of Christ with. So it doesn't matter if he's for me. It doesn't matter if his policies are good for America. It doesn't matter if he's for my religious liberty even. And I care about America and I care about my religious liberty. But I will give up all of those things for the sake of the gospel so that I can have an opportunity to share the love of Christ with those who most need it. And here in our context, particularly here in our context, in Oak Park, which is 90% progressive, to align ourselves with someone that makes fun of the very people that we are trying to win to the gospel, I, I can't go there. I don't want us as a church to go there. The Apostle Paul, writing from prison, prison for the sake of the gospel, mind you, in 2 Timothy 2.10, he wrote this. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's whole life was to see the gospel come to those that God was drawing to himself. And he was willing to endure anything for the sake of the elect, that God's people who he was drawing to himself might come to the saving faith in Jesus Christ. And my highest heart for us as a church is that would be that, that that reality would be our biggest priority in life as well. That we would endure all things to see the gospel come to those who need to hear it. That we would endure all things for the sake of the gospel. So when you think about the non-Christians in your life, are you more concerned about defeating them in the polls for the sake of America or about converting them to Jesus for the sake of the church? Which is the one that carries sway in your desires? And that's what I meant when I said last week that our highest loyalty has to be to Christ and his mission, not to America and her mission where those things overlap well and good, because I love America. Right? But where they don't overlap, we got to go with Christ. All right, which leads to the last thing, which really is kind of what I've been saying, third point. We are called to embrace the cross on the way to the kingdom. It's kind of maybe circling back around to what I said in the first point, but we are called to embrace the cross on the way to the kingdom. The whole vision, the baptismal vision that is given to us uh, in our conversion to Christianity that we looked at uh, back at, right before the election. I preached two sermons on kind of baptism and politics. And we enter into life through dying, right? We there is a path to the cross that we have to walk that leads us to the resurrection life. And there are crosses to bear on both the left and the right. Depends on the circles you swim in. It depends on the culture that a church resides in. It depends on like maybe where you work or your family context. And so you might be living here in Progressive Oak Park, but then you go home for the holidays to deep red state Republican country. And so just those are different contexts. 
Are we willing to bear the crosses that we need to bear in our context? We need, we collectively, Calvary, and then the church in North America, we need both left and right. And this is one of my commitments. I mean, if you're a Republican here at Calvary and you think Calvary would be such a better church if we just got rid of all the Democrats. If we could just get rid of the Democrats, this would be a better church. Or maybe you're a Democrat here and you're like, if we could just get rid of all the Republicans, this would be a better church. I don't believe that. We need both left and right because the gospel contains both left and right. And it's messy at times. I get that. But if we come together with our respective impulses, willing to bear our crosses, and you do your best to uphold high the banner of Christ on the left, and the other half does their best to uphold high the banner of Christ on the right, and we're both bearing our crosses in our respective locations, then I think that's probably the best that we can do in this culture, in this bifurcated two-party system. Here's the last thing I want to say as we finish out our time together this morning. Don't assume the worst in the person on the other side of the aisle. I think we can do this. I think it's hurtful and it's not fair or true. But if you're a Republican and you look at your Democrat brother or sister on the other side and you think, Democrats, they don't care about, they don't care about pro-life. They don't care about babies being killed. They're so wicked. You assume the worst about them. You don't want them to assume, assume those things about you. The Democrats sit on their side of the aisle and say, those Republicans are so racist. They just don't care about racial equality. They don't care about the poor. They have no compassion. Politics are messy. And you don't get to vote in both parties at the same time. Right? You have to pick one or the other. And it's tricky to know. It's what I've been saying all throughout with politics. It's tricky to know. Right? But believe... I would encourage you to believe, I exhort you to believe, that there are Christian ideals on the left and there are Christian ideals on the right. And when your brother or sister in Christ votes left or right opposite of you, believe that they are driven by the Christian ideals of the other side. Not by the pagan ideals of the other side that are mixed into those Christian ideals, but by the Christian ideals of the other side. Let's believe the best. And you say, hey, you know, you voted the other way. Well, I voted this way. We both say, yep. And we shake hands and we come together and we worship the Lord. And that's where we need to be recognizing that salvation is not going to come. The kingdom of God will not be brought through politics, but it will come through the union that comes through Jesus Christ. All right, so let me close with this. Uh, we need a good church father quote here to close out our sermon this morning. And so this is from St. Irenaeus, uh, second century. And uh, he uh, has taught me a lot about how to read uh, the biblical narrative and particularly how to think about Satan in respect to the biblical narrative. But he refers to Satan as the first apostate. So as I'm reading this, when you hear the word apostasy, just know he's talking about Satan. But he says, and since the apostasy, Satan, tyrannized over us unjustly, Rendering us its own disciples, the word of God, powerful in all things, did righteously turn against that apostasy and redeem from it his own property, not by violent means, as the apostasy had done, 
but by means of persuasion has became a God of counsel. The Lord has thus redeemed us through his own blood, giving his soul for our souls and his flesh for our flesh, bestowing upon us immortality. So Christ has come. He did not redeem us through violent means, but he has redeemed us through the cross and his own blood and has brought us into this place of immortality. So as we move forward here as a church, let us move forward together, arm in arm, linked together to the person of Jesus Christ, bearing our crosses where we need to, not being ashamed of Jesus and his cross, coming with the spirit of love and a posture of humility and grace to our community and bringing the truth of the gospel to those that need to hear it. Pray with me. Father, thank you for Jesus. Uh, when we were... Uh, in, uh, in the pit of despair without uh, you or hope in this world. You sent your only son who has cloaked himself in our fallenness and cast it into the grave and then has risen free of it. And so, Lord, we trust in that resurrection. Help us to not be afraid of the cross just as Jesus was willing to trust you all the way to the cross. Help us to trust you to the cross and out the other side that you've asked of us in our life, Lord. So God, be with us. Uh, Jesus, uh, as he faced his trial in the desert, help us to maintain our faith in you just like Jesus as we face our trials and our deserts, believing that there is a harvest on the other side of all of it. We pray this in Jesus' name.